Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. Louisa, welcome back to Australia. Thanks, Lovely Beverly. to have you back. Great to be here. Where have you been? Oh, I've been in the States for a couple of weeks, uh, but... Just in my last week, I was over in New York and I attended a cyber insurance conference, which was a first for me. How interesting. So what's new? What are they talking about in relation to cyber insurance? There was definitely a lot of talk about business interruption. One thing I did want to share was they put up a slide about why people buy cyber insurance and specifically what they want their cyber policy to cover. And the top three things were data breach, cyber extortion stroke ransom, and then cyber related business interruption. I think that's really interesting because they're, they're fairly obvious, but it's good to have that validated that they're the things that they really are wrapping their, so the business continuity, data breach, that's fantastic. Yep. And did you have any other insights to share with us, Louisa? I think the other one that jumped out at me was a session I went to around privacy and the views of millennials versus baby boomers. <laughs> Love it. Bring it on. Bring it on. So, yeah, the things that jumped out at me from that one, because um, there is that perception that millennials don't care about privacy and the re- and, and because of their willingness to use and share on social media. But, in fact, the panellists had, and there were millennials on the panel, they had a really strong view that millennials absolutely do care about privacy For them, convenience is king. So they are happy to share data, but they expect transparency about how their information is shared. So they still care about the privacy of their information, but they want the truth about what's being done with it. Um, And then they are happy to share that uh, to get some benefit that's usually about convenience. And then the other piece was they shared uh, some research, and we'll put the link in the show notes, that was done in the UK um, looking at digital savviness of the generations. And no surprise, I think, that millennials, I think 63% of them are digitally savvy versus about 24% of baby boomers. And that then for me uh, uncovered the question in my mind is if our baby boomers are less digitally savvy, but they are required to understand, I guess, how to drive privacy settings and, and things like that, how is that going to impact their ability to manage their own privacy? Absolutely. And we've covered that. We we talked about some of the work that uh, Professor Lizzie Coles Kemp's doing with that large disenfranchised group. And I think you and I know um, that's something that we all need to help do is to get those baby boomers um, understanding what settings they need to change and how to look after their privacy. It's another podcast, isn't it? <laughs> it definitely is, Beverly. Hey, so Louisa. 
Uh, we're going to be talking to someone today about social engineering and I wanted to ask you a trivial pursuit question because you love research and you like trivial pursuit. Who was one of the greatest con men of our time who posed as an airline pilot, a surgeon, a lawyer and guess what? He now has his own podcast about how not to get scammed. <laughs> well, I would say one of the greatest con men of our time was definitely Frank Abagnale Jr. And uh, You've <laughs> I, I just find him so fascinating. The uh, many of you may know the movie. Catch Me If You Can, which starred Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank. And it just fascinates me that I guess his scamming techniques are still in their own way alive and well today. So in, in a very relevant, yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways, they haven't changed. And, and while we're on that subject, I'm just going to share some definitions that I've, I've had a look at just so that we're all, I guess, thinking the, on the same page around social engineering. The definition in the context of information security is actually the use of deception to manipulate individuals into divulging confidential or personal information that may be used for fraudulent purposes. And I guess in the case of Frank, although we wouldn't maybe look at what he did in, in the pure information security context, but he certainly used a telephone. So he used a piece of technology to scam a Pan Am um, airline pilot's uniform. We can see that I guess in Frank's time, technology was being used in in a way to scam people as just as it is today. He used identity theft. I mean, he used other people's licenses, other people's identities. You know, it's it's absolutely no different now, is it? Um, except we've got this great use of digital enablement where you can't necessarily see who's behind yeah. it. Yeah, and Frank actually said, uh, because as you know, Beverly, he actually went on to work for the FBI. I guess they were so, I wouldn't say impressed, but they certainly realised that he was extremely capable in his field. He was the master. <laughs> um, so he, <laughs> he went on to work for the FBI and as you said, he's now got his own podcast, but he at, is actually quoted as saying in a very recent interview that technology has made crime 4,000 times easier today compared to when he was committing it um, in his day. So I found that fact really fascinating. But I also wanted to circle back just to clarify the other definition of social engineering, because we use the term a lot in cybersecurity, but it also has another meaning, which is the use of centralized planning in an attempt to manage social change and regulate the future development and behavior of a society. Just to know that there's that other definition out there, I didn't know about that. So, um, yeah, I certainly learned something from researching this show. And I think that really speaks more to the things that we've, that things that have evolved around Cambridge Analytica at a societal level, getting us to believe that that information, you know, which is fake news, but getting us to subscribe to things, to views and opinions. So I think that's the elevated social engineering, isn't yep. it? Yeah, yeah. So what we see in cybersecurity, but then there's those bigger issues. And thank goodness we've got global journalists really targeting those issues for us so that we don't, you know, so that we're not overwhelmed with 
every element of social engineering. Louisa, we've got Chris Gadford on the podcast today joining us for a chat. He's really a security evangelist. He does some really interesting things, goes to rock concerts probably because he loves them, (laughs) but also uses it as an opportunity to go and talk to young people about how to keep themselves secure. And he's going to unfold some really interesting things, a little bit about what you said around what we um, what we think that millennials think about their privacy. Chris will also share some interesting insights about how he landed in cybersecurity and, you know, he's bought and sold a few companies. So he comes with quite a lot of experience. So I'm really looking forward to having that chat with Chris. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. So let's go to the chat. Chris Gatford, thanks for joining us today. Hey, um, we're going to talk to you about social engineering. Um, But first of all, we'd like to get some background on you and your personal story about how you got into cybersecurity. You want to share that with us? So my personal story into cybersecurity, well... Yeah, I guess it's not it's not overly exciting, but I was always one of those um, kids that would take their toys apart and work out a way to put them back together to do something else to uh, often harass my sister <laughs> and have and and in my definition, my definition of a of a hacker. Uh, is somebody not necessarily obviously who's doing something malicious, but it's somebody who's thinking outside of the box and doing something creative and, and not sort of really setting or standing for the status quo, you know, or not not uh, not accepting it. So, um, so I always had that sort of approach of, you know, playing with things, making them do things that they weren't supposed to, um, always, according to my mother, always trying to scam the system, whether it was a homework or a, a um, uh, pocket money kind of reward scheme. I was always trying to find a way uh, to, to scam the system. And so I guess, you know, I had those early, those early tendencies uh, that we see in people who, who identify themselves as hackers, which is, you know, understanding how the system worked, the thirst for knowledge, wanting to make it do something different. And so when I found IT, uh, and I found IT early because my dad was early into IT. Um, he he was building data centers back in the 70s when, you know, like they were a big thing. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah. So I, I as a youngster, I saw the world, um, you know, off the back of my dad traveling around the world, building data centers for various organizations. So um, and so there was a, quite a lot of IT at home uh, in those, you know, 70s and 80s years. And then, um, you know, I obviously gravitated towards it at school and stuff, but then I was really sociable. And uh, so I really liked the idea of being a bartender. And so I was going to go with the idea of being a bartender rather than going down this whole IT lark. And then one day when I was foraging for loose change in my dad's sock drawer, I came across his payslip and went, no, I'm going to go into IT. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyhow, I went into IT and, and, and those sort of natural skills around, you know, um, thinking outside the square, um, not accepting the technology for what it does and trying to work out how you could get it to do other things sort of lent itself well for me going into IT security. And then 
Well, then IT security, I was sort of responsible for defending a lot of systems and designing networks for clients back in the, like, you know, in the really early days, like we're talking in the 90s, um, even rolling out Windows 95 to large pharmaceutical chains in the UK and Europe. And so I was tasked with, you know, doing this, but also doing it in a secure fashion. You know, computer security was just sort of really starting to get a bit more, I guess, more considered. Um, and so I sort of went down the path of, of the security angle because it sort of went, I guess, quite well aligned to the way I think. And so I was de- trying to come up with attacks to be able to defend them. And I then came back eventually to New Zealand and Australia. And, um, you know, I worked for some critical infrastructure where I had to apply the same thing. So once again, as a defender, having to understand what the uh, malicious attacker was doing intimately so I could better defend the systems. And, and that's really sort of how I got my start. And, you know, there's a couple of things in there, isn't it? You can't be what you can't see. And so having your father, and not only that, having some little sneak peek at his salary also inspired you as well. And the fact that you just love, you're very interested in people, um, I think it's a great attribute as well. But I guess it's, you know, are they born these people that like to hack or are they created? You know, it's a good question. I think there's both. I think there's probably both ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, over the years, I've had the privilege of working with some just amazing information security people, um, some that I've plucked out of university. And, and in some cases, I have literally uh, taken them almost off the street and, and given them a role, and they've become very successful penetration testers in their own right. So I'd say... I'd say you can do you it can be both you can you you can be sort of naturally gifted but also you can learn some of those skills um it is a hard skill to learn thinking out of the box but it can be taught it can be um a discipline that you sort of engage in and and create and if you've got that desire to learn then then there's certainly a lot and there's a lot of things you can do in security it doesn't just have to be penetration testing of course absolutely which is a lovely lead into social engineering can you kind of tell us a bit more about the sort of things that you're seeing and the, some of the exciting things you've done? You know, it's interesting. I, I think uh, and I, I was just as I was listening to that question, I was sort of visualising some of the things that I've done over the years and some things that my team have done over the years, and it doesn't really generally change. So for us, social engineering is more than just phishing emails. Social engineering is engaging with the uh, client and uh, first off, obviously understanding what their objectives of the testing are. um, And then sort of us going back and working out what our uh, approach might be to achieve those objectives and and gain access to whatever the desired information is. So over the years, you know, often that requires physical access. And so we, are very adept at sort of gaining physical access to organizations uh, in various methods to be able to sit down, plug into the internal network and go after often the informational assets. Although these days there are some physical assets that people are concerned about and even physical access to those. So social engineering is, I guess, the methods that you use to persuade and extract information from people. And we get to do that both physically and electronically. And are people starting to understand that this is 
something that can be used because very high profile people are being targeted. So is there more opportunity, I guess is a better question, in the market around tell us everything you can find out about us, what would be that point of that inflection point of finding out how to really get in mm. so i think i think people are sort of becoming more aware of it um unfortunately there is still a focus on the electronic side which is a shame because social engineering is just so much more than just phishing emails it's uh obviously the physical interaction it's the phone calls it's the social media interactions and they're becoming very successful and unfortunately in australia uh we do tend to be um security unaware uh generally speaking for the for the people who work you know the the average joe inside an organization is generally security unaware and we have seen more recently the business email compromise stuff starting to really, um, I guess, hurt organizations in Australia. Um, business email compromise, if you're not familiar with it, it's when people uh, send fake invoices uh, to be paid, feigning to be a current supplier and normally targeting accounts payable staff who then go and action that or uh, the CEO asking for an urgent deposit to be made and once again, targeting the accounts payable or people who are able to do transactions inside the organization. And, you know, we are losing millions of dollars a week out of Australia with this technique. It's very successful. And it's because these people don't understand some fundamental security concepts. I think, um, look, for some of us, we we understand that. You know, we go to the executive assistants in organisations and say typically we'll lay it out for them and say, this is what it looks like. They will come to you. It will always have these attributes. It will be a different account number, but a company that might sound familiar. And it'll always have a sense of urgency. Um, we, we've got a long way to, to work on that one. I guess the other one is the social media ones really becoming quite fascinating where they're impersonating very, very high-profile people. Graham Cluley this morning was talking about it on his podcast where they um, had a fake um, Twitter account for the British Central Police and it was just fascinating. An outsourced company was managing their Twitter account and they had got hacked but there was a really big backstory to it. And do you have any advice that you can share with people about, you know, what are the things, because it's much harder now than ever before. There used to be typos. There used to be some obvious things that we needed to look for. Are there some things that you can kind of give us some clues? Yeah, you know, so those good old classics of, you know, typos and the time it was sent are sort of really null and void these days, quite right. You know, the attackers have become a lot more sophisticated. Uh, they will send uh, uh, legitimate emails first as outside queries to try and get um, the footers of emails. They'll start conversations that way. Um, they normally start their their process for specifically for business email compromise. They start their process by looking at LinkedIn. So looking at LinkedIn and understanding who to target inside the organization. So I know it probably goes against the grain, but, you know, we obviously recommend to our customers, 
you know, review your LinkedIn profile, make sure that business titles aren't specifically advertising, make sure that only connections, like like valid connections can see some of those more intimate details about you um, and training their staff about why it's so successful. Um, the next sort of level down is teaching the end users. And for example, teaching an end user that, and even people in information security sometimes don't really fully understand this, but anyone, and I mean anyone, can send an email purporting to be from anyone else, including the email address and the name. So it's it, it's not, I suppose you could call it, it's probably more more technically accurate as just, you know, sending an email, but forging it the, the email address that it's coming from. Because literally you can go to an online form and fill all this in and press send. So um, it's it's not hard. You can't have a two-way conversation. It's a one-way conversation. What more modern attackers are doing, though, is putting in the, in the email when they hit the reply, it does a different reply address. So people check the from address first. We've been teaching people to look at the from address. And then they've got a sense of legitimacy and they hit the reply and they don't check that and it's going somewhere else. So that's why a lot of the business email compromise stuff is working so well. So we teach people uh, to, you know, put in decent business processes to start, you know, challenge the emails, never <clears throat> even teaching an end user that anyone can send an email purporting to be from anyone else uh, significantly improves the security posture because now they just don't trust email. <laughs> and they get so many of them. You know, I find in my line of work, I actually IM people because I can bypass their <laughs> email system, which has usually got about 150 emails sitting in it. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Look, that, they are great points on, you know, what are the things that we, you know, because we really want to help people get um get a good understanding of what's going on around the human side. Now, speaking of which, um, you're hanging out at rock concerts, Chris, uh, specifically one, the Science Tent and Splendour on the Grass. What do they have to do by attending those with social engineering and what are you seeing from that age group um, that are attending those concerts? Well, that's a that's a very pointed question. You, you don't work for the ATO, do you, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just in case the ATO are listening, I, I've got full receipts or anything um, <laughs> for the outfit as well. <laughs> yeah, and the outfit. Oh my god, so, it's sensational! But, like, I, I really do enjoy sort of um, being a security evangelist and 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 talking to you know all sorts of people. And luckily, I've been invited for the last couple of years to. Uh, the science and forum tent um, with Dr. Kyle and Adam Spencer and doing uh, a panel with Sulet Dreyfus and a couple of other industry chums um, talking about information security. And it's really interesting. Like, you know, we're really focusing at a very basic level. We're showing, uh, you know, splendor punters, um, you know, how to protect yourself, um, things that you can do, basic steps and you know, over the years, I think, you know, we've sort of educated uh, hundreds of people on, on better cybersecurity hygiene. And are they really, I think we can make a lot of assumptions about certain age groups, about how they don't value their privacy. Are they starting to understand through, you know, recent release, the great hack, um, 
about Brexit and because they do care about politics and they do care about global issues, are they starting to really bite into their own safety online? Yeah, you know they are, and it's a really varied audience, especially at Splendour in the Grass. Uh, I was on a panel two years ago, and um, on the panel uh, was, you know, three different politicians, uh, including Anthony Albanese. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the questions from the audience are really interesting. So this, this panel was uh, sort of like cross, like a couple of different topics. Um, and, you know, like... The audience is very, very thoughtful in their questions. You know, they are very, quite an astute audience and they are concerned about all sorts of issues. Um, so I think in relation to, to Splendor, it is it is a useful outreach. You know, I think we should be doing more of it as an industry, getting out there and talking and educating groups about how they can better protect themselves. I think it's fantastic. I mean, we want to talk to anybody that's interested in privacy, safety and security. I mean, I think what's really missing is if you look at what um, the NCSC are doing, you know, we're lagging behind because we've got too many points of entry and we're not getting out um, to the masses around how to improve their online hygiene as you call it so what are some things that we have you got some messages that you really like to convey about um so we've talked about social engineering you know what are you saying to your kids because I imagine I know they're young and they're online what are you what sort of messages uh, are you managing with them Geez, I tell you, it's one of the funniest topics at the moment is uh, securing the family home. And as an infosec professional, when you are tasked with that, you think, eh, you know, how hard could it be? But geez, it's hard. It's very hard. It does take on a whole level of discipline because what you tell people they should be doing in the workplace, you've got all this emotional level playing at home with, no, but I really need access to this. There's that, but there's also the technology that they're using, and I'm just amazed. Like you know, I um, we were, we locked down YouTube, obviously, and um, you know they could use kids YouTube, and occasionally they would say, "Look, this isn't available on kids YouTube, so can I, um, you know, use use a normal browser and and gain access to it?" And you're like, "Yeah, okay, all right," and then you you know you you make sure that you know they were they were on the up and up, and then one time. One time I was like looking at, um, came into my son's room um, and I noticed he was seeing a video that wasn't inappropriate, but I knew knew it wouldn't be available through through kids' YouTube. And what he'd done is at the end of just a harmless normal, you know, game on the iPad, it had a video tutorial and he was then leapfrogging through the other suggestions to be able to see all the other content. <laughs> so, so even my son's finding ways to get around my security controls. It's uh, well, yes, yeah. you might have another <laughs> chip off the old block. You think? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a following in the footsteps. So where do you see? Because your kids are quite young. Where do you see that generation going in terms of digital literacy? I mean, they really do seem to understand how to use the technology. Getting them to understand, you know, just 
the level of appropriateness and how long they should be using it for and all that sort of stuff's more challenging, isn't it? Yeah. So one of one of my industry colleagues um, who speaks at Splendor with me, um, you know, he he takes his daughter along. Uh, in fact, they all do. Uh, a lot of the panel took along their their kids this year, and they're very cybersecurity aware. Uh, you know, it's 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 really interesting. Um, so I think you know, coming back to securing the family home, a it's hard. Uh, it's much harder than you might imagine. Um, obviously encouraging two-factor auth, good complex passwords, introducing to password management in the early days. Um, you know, those are the sorts of things we should be thinking about. And then at the boundary level on the network layer, um, you know, putting appropriate filtering controls in place. And if you're a little bit stuck about where to start, um, go check out the OpenDNS uh, solution. That's, um, I think it's pretty much free these days, uh, but that just stops your any systems inside your house going to anything nasty. So that's the usual barbecue conversation I have. There are some bigger questions I think about. So is hacking going to be outsourced? You know, is it really something that we're going to see really change as a profession? Yeah. So is the nature of how people hack their applications, is that model going to change? It depends on the organisation itself. Like whilst we see various services coming uh, and morphing within the industry, um, I don't think so. And organisations with a really high security mo model uh, maturity can can take different choices, but traditional security consulting and knowing who is testing your environment and being able to reach out and touch them, I don't think that will ever go away in a hurry. Yeah, you really, it's, it's highly confidential stuff and the trust, it, it's probably a 10 plus for trust, isn't it? You know, what you find out and what you ascertain, you know, you know everything about them. So um, that's going to be, I agree with you. I think that trust model still got to exist. So Chris, Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, how do people get hold of you? Yeah, so my team and I, uh, these days, we're at a company called Hacktive.io. So that's Hacktive with a K, H-A-C-K-T-I-V-E dot I-O. All the cool kids, by the way, have dot I-O domain names now. Um, and we perform a range of services from security testing to managed security services to consulting around different frameworks. So feel free to reach out to me at chris at hacktive.io or hit me up on Twitter at Chris Scatford. Beverly, I love that chat with Chris. What an amazing security evangelist he is and so knowledgeable about his domain. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And uh, I think I've got some really pointed questions for you. But before I go to those, I'm starting to see a pattern emerge from all of our podcast chats with our guests when we ask them that question how did you land in cyber? And it seems Chris was also sharing what many of our guests have shared is that that curiosity, 
that you need to to be in cybersecurity and whether that's a curiosity about how a piece of technology works and that want, wanting to unpack it or a curiosity about humans and about how they behave it's definitely that key ingredient uh, for a career in cybersecurity but i think for chris you can see he's combined a curiosity for technology and people. And I think that's probably one of the reasons he's been so successful um, in building and selling several businesses in our industry mm. as well. What do you think, Emily? I don't think he would have been satisfied as a barman. I know that was one of his other pursuits. <laughs> you know, he's clearly found our profession really enriching and he does a lot of things outside. You know, going to rock concerts, even if you love a rock concert, you've got to assimilate into that environment. He has a lot of fun with it. I saw a photo of him at Splendour in the Grass and, you know, they, they're just doing great things to get our messages across about how to stay safe online, not doing such a good job with his children. None of us are. We're just hopeless at folding when they say, <laughs> I want this app and I want it now. And I, I felt him cringe as we were talking about that. And I could so relate to when they ask you for something and you think you know in your heart you should be reading the terms and conditions. You know you should be looking at what settings, but they want it and they want it now. So yes, that's a challenging that's a challenging space for for everybody, isn't it? I also love some of the things that he talked about in terms of saying that, you know, the millennials are really asking very thoughtful questions about their privacy and security, which is just, it's great to hear. It's reassuring to hear that these messages are amplifying out, especially all the good work that the eSafety office does. You know, it seems to me and Sid, it's, it's all starting to amplify out, isn't it? And Beverly, I've actually got a, a question for you and uh, this is an area of your expertise because I know you have been hands-on in the penetration testing space and, and running programs in that space and I'd love to get your take on that question you asked Chris about are we going to see pen testing outsourced and that that feedback that came back from both of you really about the fact that it's such mm. a trust-based exercise in a business because of the information that comes out of it. Um, one thing I, I guess I, I would love to have heard both of your views on was about bug bounty programs and when are they um, appropriate to use? I think that's a great, thanks for asking that question. <laughs> there was probably just, you know, we were limited from a time perspective, but that you're absolutely right that as much as we want to look at other models, can, pen testing can be really expensive as a program and I'm certainly seeing um, that currently, but I'm not saying it's not worth it. It absolutely is. And you do look to explore where can you use bug bounties, where can you use other models to get the results that you're looking for because we all know that having pen testing on staff it can have its challenges in relation to they need new and exciting things to work on and and if you're just giving them the same old stuff they're not growing um, and prospering their careers as well look I think um, it really comes down to I think if you've got something that's not in production 
that um, you're happy to do, you know, there's tools obviously for code reviews, but if you need um, some testing, I think that's a great opportunity for those bug style bounty um, solutions. But I think for anything that is legacy or holds data that um, is really key to your competitive um, advantage in business, then I think it's traditional pen testing. I was surprised too to get that answer, but it did validate for me that trust beyond everything else is probably the most important thing. And, um, you know, you and I have talked about, so the future state of cybersecurity, which we'll talk about in more detail in another podcast. But I think it it will be interesting to ask those questions of each of the domain domain holders or domain expertise about where do you see this going? So it was great to get that feedback from Agreed. Chris about, yeah, that was good. Yeah, because I think uh, we've, we've heard the feedback from multiple people at multiple levels that there isn't a skill shortage in cybersecurity, mm. that the challenge lies in our recruitment process. Mm. And then the other question, as you said, is then, well, what does the future workforce look like? What do we need to plan for? As leaders in the cybersecurity industry, how do we plan for the next 10 years as technology changes the shape of our roles, both from a the criminal element that we're dealing with, but also then from a, a day-to-day job perspective as, as we see AI and other technologies automate some of our work just like the other industries are experiencing. So I think there's some really big questions we need to answer yeah, <laughs> on I, I a future that's podcast. Too, too big for the end of of this one, because I can see that you know we got to pull th- people up through this industry. We're not doing that. We're tightly holding some of those key roles. Um, we're not future planning and succession planning in the way that we we should be doing. And of course, we're going to have a massive intake out of all these university courses and certificate courses that everybody's thrown good money at, we need to be able to work out where to put these people. I think the other um, point was the conversation's changing, isn't it? The conversation around the sort of things that um, you can impart with people. I know that when you're in a taxi, what conversation do you have with a taxi driver, Louisa? Well, actually, from doing the podcast, it's probably changed. And now I take the Graham Cluley approach, (laughs) which is to tell people to get a password keeper and to not reuse passwords across different sites. So that that I've taken with me and that's now the message that I'm sharing for now. And, of course, we must always be ready to change our message as the criminals evolve. There's never going to be that silver bullet this is the same advice every time, every month. Yeah, I guess that's certainly the the line that I'm using today uh, until things evolve. And Chris said during our chat that the barbecue conversation has really changed. People actually really talk to him about not what he's doing but what advice he should give. And, of course, he's saying securing the family home, two-factor authentication, filtering, especially if you've got little kids. Um, making sure then they're not seeing things on YouTube 
um, that are going to scare the living daylights out of them and also using the advice that the e-safety office produces and, you know, how to have, you know, basically how to have fun and um, a, a safe digital experience. I think that's a wrap, Louisa. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. We really look forward to you joining us soon. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and for more information, visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on Twitter at CyberSEC Cafe.